Welcome to your Breakthrough Blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Oste, a trauma-informed marriage coach. After a decade of failed efforts, I transformed my marriage, parenting, business, and health in just six months by learning how to repair my nervous system and move trauma out of my body. And now I'm here to help you do the same thing. Get ready to hear inspirational stories and walk away with tangible guidance on how to design your blueprint to your breakthrough life. Oh my goodness, guys, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am for today. I have Lauren Dry on the podcast with me today. Lauren is from all the way across the pond, Australia, and so it is 8.30 p.m. her time, 8.30 a.m. my time. And Lauren is a specialist in the nervous system and unconscious mind behaviors and shares her passion for using new and innovative nervous system tools to help you have an empowered and connected relationship, whether that's parenting or in your love life. But today we're going to dive into parenting. She's a mom of two. Our kids are very similar in age. And that's the official bio, but personally, I'll, I'll have Lauren introduce herself in one second. I just want you to know, Lauren, you're my Instagram crush, 1000%. I have <laughs> loved connecting with you every time your reels and stories and carousels come up on my feed. I'm like, there's Lauren. And oh, you're also my celebrity crush because I'm convinced you're actually Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> just faking an Australian accent. I love that. Uh, so how oh, are you it. today, Lauren? Good. I, I love that you mentioned it's 8.30 at night here. We've had a chaotic day with pipes bursting and, you know, kids just generally being, let's just say they're being kids after a very long day. And so I've really been looking forward to sitting down and having a nice chat and, you know, talking to another mom about stuff we're both so passionate about and, you know, about connection and relationships and, you know, how to not to put your kids in the bin at the end of the day. It's all my favorite stuff. And guys, just so you know, for this episode, I've got, you know, my kids getting ready for school. I hear one crying right now. You may hear that in the background. Her kids might come running in. We're just keeping it real today. So. That is what we're going to talk about, keeping our nervous system regulated through parenting and reversing generational trauma. So I wanted to start out by asking, Lauren, what would you say your parents passed down to you from, you know, your childhood that you noticed, you know, I don't want to continue this pattern towards in my, with my children. Sorry. Yeah, there's one thing that really comes to mind straight away when you ask me that question. And I know there's a lot of common generational traumas, particularly for our generation. There's one that I don't think that's really talked about enough with the nuance and the detail that helps us helps us understand it with more compassion as to why we behave this way. And that is definitely the generational trauma pattern of hypervigilance. We can kind of say and use these labels like, oh, she's a helicopter mom or, you know, she's a clean freak or can't get out of the house on time. These are all symptoms of hypervigilance and they're a generational trauma response that comes from the generation before us that didn't have the tools that we have now that reflect the importance of emotional literacy and emotional connection on a really detailed level because our parents' generation were basically given the instructions that in order to be a good parent, your children needed to be well-behaved, well-dressed, 
for light. And if they weren't, so for example, these three things, just to start, if they weren't these three things, the hardest generational wound that was given to them was that not only were their children about bad behaviour, they were bad people. So we as children, it became our role and responsibility to manage our interactions and behaviours in a way that maintained connection because our parents understood that or they were taught that if we weren't well well behaved, that was intricately tied into their identity. So it's not that they had bad children, it's that they were bad parents. So what they thought is that they had a strict way of parenting and said, if you don't do this, we're going to withdraw our affection, you're going to be sent to your room or whatever the punishment is, then we would learn how to be good people and what it means to be a a well-performing adult. But what happened instead is that our nervous systems learnt that if we don't perform the right way, we're not going to be connected, we're not going to be cared for. And that, for a child, is very, very dangerous because children can't exist without a primary caregiver. So we created tools and one of them, we could go through all of them, but one hypervigilance actually taught our bodies that if we don't feed them the organic foods, if we don't have them dressed well, if we don't, again, you know, well-behaved children is very important, but then you've got the gentle parenting dynamic on top of everything. You know, if we're not really, you know, saying the right things and doing the right things at all the right time, then we are going to be disconnected. Our nervous system is going to be punished. And that hypervigilance, unfortunately, although the intention is to keep our kids safe and the intention is to keep ourselves safe, it creates disconnection because our nervous system can't relax, can't calm down, can't stay present, and that's where connection is formed. So it's all performative. And so we try to cope by feeding them the right foods, taking them to the right playgroup, sending them to the right schools. You know, this hypervigilance is actually providing the very thing that we're trying to prevent. Wow. That's already so much to unpack. So good. You know, just kind of cliff note summary of what I just heard you saying is performance ultimately blocks connection. You know, when we're in performance mode, it is the opposite, you know, of intimacy. It's not able to be present and be at home in our nervous system. First of all, I just have to say, I've said this before offline, but I love your accent. Like anything coming out of your mouth, it's, I love listening to you talk. You could be talking about God knows what. And I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. But you mentioned the nervous system and just for definition's sake, and also playing on the last post I just saw you post on Instagram, Lauren, what the hell is the nervous system? (laughs) I'm glad you liked that one. So the nervous system to like go ultra basic is... You know, it consists of the ner- the nerves and the cells in the body and the brain that connect and communicate with each other. But when it comes to emotional regulation, I'll give you the spiel that actually comes from the, the post because it's a really condensed version. It's basically there's two parts. You have the higher cortex. And if we're going to picture the brain as like a container, the higher cortex is the lid. But the higher cortex is where you absorb all the, this new information about gentle parenting, about, you know, how you should talk to your partner or, you know, all of those tools that you might figure out in talk therapy or, you know, in a self-help book. All of that information lives in the higher cortex where the process is reasoning, um, pros and cons, and helps you understand the consequences of your behaviour. 
in the second part of the brain that's related to emotional regulation and nervous system behaviors is the the limbic system and in the limbic system is this tiny little almond shaped organ called the amygdala and this is responsible for all your fight flight fawn freeze responses so your survival responses your danger responses this is basically where your instincts come from the problem is that a lot of the time when we try to heal things like hypervigilance or heal things like you know how we can stop losing our temper or whatever it is we focus on all of that information in the higher cortex so you know the lid of the container but when you're in a state of fight flight fawn or freeze the lid of this container literally pops off it goes flying and your primal responses your survival responses related to your instincts take over and they're in charge so if we're only focusing on getting new information that lives in the lid of the container and that flies off it's useless to us when we're feeling angry or upset and we genuinely feel like we're in danger because our mind doesn't know the difference between our unconscious mind doesn't know the difference between a tiger chasing us and stepping on Lego. It, it doesn't. <laughs> or if we're you know, having a debate with our partner who, who hasn't done the dishes, those same emotions come through and those same responses of, you know, we're in danger, you know, get rid of all the things we don't need that live in the higher cortex and we're going to turn on the amygdala and that's where our fight, flight, fawn, freeze responses come from. So that's the basics of the nervous system in terms of how it relates to emotional regulation and our behavior. I love that. And I'm a visual person. So the lid example really helps me. Mm. Why do we mimic our parents' nervous systems? Or how would you explain how the generational trauma gets passed down in the first place? So a lot of us get really frustrated and guilty and annoyed at ourselves when we can see that we're mimicking behaviors from the generation before us that we don't like, you know, like yelling or sending our kids to a room or for some mums it's spanking or whatever it is, those behaviours that, you know, when you kind of have your own children you sit there and you decide I want to do things differently for whatever that looks like, we feel a lot of shame and guilt when we find ourselves doing those behaviours. But when you understand that the nervous system is built that way and it mimics these responses to protect us, what's actually happening is that as children, when we experience these, these behaviours ourselves of, you know, being disconnection or being sent to your room, we understood that if we misbehaved, we would be disconnected from our primary caregiver, which is for a child dangerous. And, you know, our brain understands that as, you know, a life-threatening danger because we can't survive without a caregiver. So in order to prevent that from happening, as the brain develops, we become so good at internalizing these behaviors and taking on that behavior ourselves, that we don't even need our parents to send us to our room or you know whatever those disconnected behaviors were because we do that to ourselves. we criticize ourselves in order to prevent that disconnection happening and then when we have our own children our nervous system is already primed and said it says to us in order to prevent disconnection in order to keep our children safe we need to keep them safe the same way we were kept safe so that means sending them to their room, yelling, whatever that means, that when we feel inflamed and we feel like there's danger and a risk of disconnection, it's an act of love by our nervous system to say, we don't want our children to be unsafe, so we're going to put that on our children. And that's where these behaviours get perpetrated and carried on and carried on and carried on because 
It's only very recently that we've understood that these behaviours actually live in the unconscious mind because up until recently what we've done is we've tried to beat our brain into submission just by reading all these books and saying, oh, this is what I should be doing without realising that without bringing the amygdala, without bringing the unconscious mind on board to be involved in this process, as soon as you get stressed, everything that you learn goes offline. That is so powerful. We've tried to beat our brain into submission by uh, reading all these books and just tapping into the part of our brain that is the lid, not the actual amygdala and getting into, you know, the part of our nervous system that we need in order to change our behaviors. So I know my listeners are thinking, because I'm thinking this too, when you say like, if our kid behaves in a way that isn't, you know, right or you know misbehaves and then we send them to their room that disconnection can be dangerous and what's going through my head is like oh my gosh when I first slept train Ollie my six-year-old I was taught that the cry it out method was the way to go and you know leave him to cry and I've thought about that a lot lately and I actually had a conversation with him a week ago. And I was like, Ollie, you probably don't remember this, but when you were a baby, I was trying to teach you how to sleep through the night. And the advice I got was to leave you alone to cry. And I actually don't agree with that anymore. And I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. Now I'm not saying if you, if you do that method, that maybe that works for your kids. But for me, I felt it in my gut that I needed to apologize for that. And he didn't remember, but he lit up when I said that. And it's really interesting because he's had nightmares, like he regularly sleepwalks, has nightmares. And then we had this conversation the other day and I saw his whole body and energy shift. And then I said, Ollie, what if we rewrote your baby days? And he was like, what does that look like? I was like, like, we could pretend you're a baby. You'll go to your room. You'll cry for me and I'll actually come in and snuggle you. And so we've done that. He was actually down for it. He's only six. He's not like too cool for an idea like that yet. And he slept the next three nights in a row without a nightmare. And we woke up every morning and celebrated, you know, Ollie, oh my gosh, you didn't have a nightmare. That's awesome. And I don't know if it's coincidence or what, but this is what's coming up. Like, can we repair it if we've sent our kids to our room and done the damage? So I really love everything about this example. And I love it so much because it is the perfect example of why something that I like to refer to as the time machine exercise works. So the time machine exercise works, and I would call that the perfect example of the time machine exercise, literally asking your kids if you can redo something that happened in the past. And it might have only been five minutes ago, but redoing something in the past that happens that you would like to do differently What's so fascinating about that exercise is that our brain and our nervous system and the way that our neural connections are formed is the same when you are living an event as when you imagine yourself reliving that event. And it's mind-blowing. If you, if you touch electrodes to the brain, the same or similar areas of the brain light up. And the reason why this is so important is that It's such a freeing exercise for mothers because you can have a moment as a parent and it can be years ago or it can be as recently as five minutes ago and you can feel, oh, gosh, I wish I had shown up differently. I wish I had performed differently. But when we recognise that those pathways are the same, 
if you have a young child, you can say, can we top in the time machine? And you can put a blanket over their heads and you can rumble, rumble, come out. We're in the past. Let's do it again. Okay. You, I don't know, dropped your ice cream on the floor and, you know, quick, drop your ice cream on the floor. And they pretend to drop their ice cream on the floor. And, and you say, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. What happened? Um, but I don't yell this time because I want to I want to do this in a new way. Um, and your kid thinks it's a game and they think it's really funny, which is even better because, when we engage play into a process and your your parasympathetic nervous system is on online, you get to integrate an experience, I think it's 200 times faster than if you were in a state of stress or, you know, you weren't engaging that play. But what happens is reliving that experience is the same as, ex- as experiencing it in real time. So you are building new neural pathways for your children of, oh, okay, this is what can happen. Even though mommy lost her temper five minutes ago, oh, okay, this is what can happen. This is what feels like to have that repair. This is what feels like to relive that experience in a connected way. This is what it feels like to be safe in my big emotions. And I can watch and, and see that it's okay for mommy to make mistakes too. All of that is so powerful. I, I love the time the, the time machine exercise and this is the, just the perfect example of it because even though we think it's a game and we're not rewriting the past, guess what? For our nervous system, you are. That's amazing. I'm obsessed so with cool. that. I'm going to do it's that with so my cool. kids. Can I yeah. do that with my husband too? <laughs> <laughs> Come here, awesome. babe. Let's hop in the time machine. Let me put yes. a blanket up. <laughs> like what the hell is wrong with you obsessed okay so you know many of my listeners they're not only navigating the natural challenges that come with parenting but in the background they've also got marriage issues constantly fueling a dysregulated nervous system what words of encouragement or advice do you have for those mamas first of all I've got so much empathy I really really do because I think it's so important that we recognize that before we have children we design a way of communicating and design a framework for our relationship that works but it also works because we have the energy we have the time and our roles in life and our capacity levels for you know maybe staying up until three o'clock in the morning having a dnm about something that happened two days ago we have the capacity for it and so that the rules on which our relationship are based are different when children come along because your capacity level changes all of your your childhood wounds get brought up you know you really have to dive deep into what your attachment style is all of that because even though your relationship was probably wonderful or it might not have been before you had kids, it is different. It is new post-children. Your energy level is new. Your body is new. And it it's important and I think it's a missed opportunity when we talk about the stages and the life cycle of a relationship not to give that stage more time, more honour and more compassion because it is a stage that is realistic in any long-term relationship to accept that in order to grow and develop together, there has to be a period of a relationship death where you grieve and you process and you leave behind the way your relationship used to work and also grieve and say goodbye to, you know, 
the emotional maturity level of like a 20 year old, if that's when you met or a 25 year old or even 30, however old you were when you were met, when you met so that you can embrace the maturity that comes with the next stage. But comfort is called the comfort zone for a reason. It's, it's not a fun process. For some people, it's it's easier than others, but there's not a single person in the world who goes through that process and is like, yay, this was smooth and this was a ride in the park. And if they do say that, they're lying. <laughs> it takes discomfort. It takes pressure to build that new stage and to find that new safety level and that that new relationship that comes with the intensity of bringing young children into the world. And all of the depletion of your energy or the depletion of your patience, you know, the realignment of how you communicate, the realignment of how you interact, your energy levels, your intimacy, everything that comes along with that. It is important that we spend more time just as as a generation, as a community, as a a society, honouring that stage of the relationship and freeing us from the pressure that we feel that when... I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this on your podcast. S-H-I-T, it's the fan. Uh, you can say whatever um, you want, Lauren. All right, okay. When she hits the fan, literally, and you hit that stage, you're like, okay, it's here, as opposed to, holy crap, my my relationship's in the toilet and, you know, we have to get divorced now and that's the end of it. It's a natural stage and, you know, for some people it brings out things that, you know, are really intense and, you know, they're obviously that's a conversation for another time about those times when you know it does bring out things that need to be addressed and you know create uh, a safe space where you know you can say maybe we're not in alignment anymore but I can guarantee you that the majority of the time that it is an opportunity for you to sit there and go okay I need to start working on myself I need to start working on my my boundaries my safe boundaries where you end and I begin so we can have a new connection a new connected relationship and become true partners so interesting to me and I think it's so important and you're right when you say like our society doesn't do a great job at even honoring or validating like hey these are chapters to grieve the close not necessarily the close of but the shift of like our relationship is not going to be exactly how it was before kids yet I find most of us are just you know, fantasizing about the yesteryears and constantly going back to the honeymoon phase of like, that's the the marker of like when we were our best, when it's, you know, we don't grieve. We don't, I mean, as a society, that's another conversation for another time too. We don't know how to grieve and how to complete grief. But I think that's so important just to honor the shift and the change because honestly, it's such a blur. You know, once you have a baby, it's just like, go, go, go mode. So I'm picturing maybe even taking time while you're pregnant. I'm not getting pregnant again. Snip, snip, we're done. (laughs) But for those who do have the opportunity to like have children again, taking some time to grieve the transition. And I think it's really freeing to recognize as well that we're not meant to be the same people that we were 10 years ago. You know, we want to leave that emotional maturity stage behind and it takes a process it takes some intensity to get there but also I, I i heard this this um explanation recently that i hope you don't mind me sharing about um the importance of what we're aiming for in a relationship and when we're if we change the focus of our aim in a relationship from i want to be happy all the time um because happiness is dopamine and the thing that we don't i suppose recognize enough with 
chasing happiness and chasing the the hit of dopamine is that what dopamine gives you is a desire for more dopamine. Whereas when we actually change the goal and the trajectory of our marriage to be, as opposed to I want to be running at high at, on a high all the time to I would like peace, I would like contentment, I would like partnership and clarity and, um, you know, that softer connection that comes with the maturity of going through hard things together, that's achievable because then the hard times don't rock you quite so much. It becomes all a part of the ebb and the flow of your relationship in your life because what you're looking to achieve is contentment within the chaos and partnership in, you know, sometimes a divided world as opposed to I want you to serve me and make me happy all the time, which is not possible. Super helpful. I love that. So I want to ask a couple of practical questions for you. Just like give us your wisdom, give us your advice. One of the triggers for me has been kids interrupting on a Zoom call. And I know you got a compliment the other day of like handling that with ease and peace and tell us how do you move through moments like that in your parenting? Yeah. So I I love this question because um, I shared recently about, you know, being complimented on how calm I was on a Zoom call. And even that kind of took me off guard because I I'd shared this story because um, years ago I wasn't that person. And I used to be fascinated when I came across people like that. I was like, how do you stay so calm? And I think what the, the most important stage to get to when it comes to finding calm in the chaos is first of all, understanding what kind of nervous system you were given. So for me, that looks like understanding what my attachment style is, you know, what my normal stress response is, is it fight, flight, fawn or freeze? And understanding and designing a life and a reality that is functional for my nervous system. So I'm not the type of person who is going to, you know, squeeze a million things in my day and like pack all these activities in for my children. Like, you know, they can choose one thing that they want to dedicate their time to and, you know, and energy to. And if I have a work day and we've got, you know, a day full of activities, because I homeschool as well, I'm not going to overstimulate my nervous system and that's always really actually a quite a big priority of mine I have that as a priority because I understand that how my nervous system operates when it's under too much pressure so I know where the line is and I can kind of taste it when I'm operating past my capacity because it it feels like a, a, a bubbling in my belly a tightness in my chest and in my throat And I can also see it in the cues of how I interact with my kids. So during the day, it's a fluid process of am I responding to their cues for, it's called a bid for connection and a bid for recognition. So, you know, the bids during the day of, you know, even look at that bird, mum. And if I'm not even just looking at that bird, that's a cue for me to go, okay, I understand what my values and my priorities are. My values are connection with my family and my children. So if I'm not, Finding that I'm not able to do that is because something is out of alignment that is is ticking my nervous system into hyperdrive. And I love how this brings us back to the first question that you asked me of hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is a really big thing that I inherited in my generational trauma patterns. So I've become very familiar with it. 
So when you become familiar with what your generational traumas and patterns are, they can become your friend because you work with them and you say, okay, well, this is simply what I was given. I'm going to start working with it and designing a life and designing a lifestyle that allows me to nourish that and that allows me to have peace and calm in the chaos. So because I'm a homeschooling mom and I do do a lot of Zoom sessions, I have certain Zoom sessions that are set aside that are really deep intensives and I make sure the kids aren't around for that. But I also have Zoom sessions that are quite casual and, you know, they are more of a check-in style and, you know, I tend to work with quite a few mums and that gives them a lot of peace and clarity that if, if there's things going on in the background, it's a really fluid, open process. And I make sure that there is a container where I'm like, if the kids are around and this is a really fluid process, I'm going to stay true to that. If they come in, then that's okay. And I, I, and I surrender to their age you know, I encourage them and they do better and they bet better and better for understanding the boundaries. But when they don't, I also have a process. I don't expect perfection from them. If they're around, they're going to stuff up sometimes. And I build that into my process. And that way, when shit it does hit the fan and they do make mistakes and things do get a little bit weird, I haven't put myself in a box where I've said, oh, if I only I'd done this, then my five-year-old would have behaved, behaved perfectly. No, he's five. I'm the adult and it's my responsibility to build into my processes the reality of what a five-year-old is like. And that helps me cope. So good. And I know when you mentioned attachment style, some might be wondering, what is that? Can you define that real quick? I love, I love, love, love everything to do with attachment styles because when it first was addressed to me, I didn't think I had an attachment style category whatsoever. I was like, no, none of these feel familiar. So there's, there's a few main categories and you can break them down further, but the basics are anxious attachment style, um, avoidant attachment style, disorganized attachment style, and secure attachment style. And I like to refer to them as anxious isn't necessarily that you have anxiety, although it is common. It's you're the chaser, you're the fixer. When things go wrong, you throw yourself into it. When someone has a problem, you will be there. But that's, that's a pro for the anxious attachment style. But what the con side of it is that what people don't recognize is that being a fixer is often a cover um, for avoiding addressing your own problems and nourishing your own self. You know, look, if I can fix and I can show you what you're doing wrong, I don't need to look too closely at myself. Then you've got the avoidant, which is the runner. I call them the runner. <laughs> so when there's a problem, they shut down or they say, I don't want to deal with this right now. I'm too busy or, you know, you're dramatic. You know, that's a really common calling card for an avoidant, you know, and it, but, but the compact, the thing is the, the, the pro for that side is they're excellent with boundaries. They're good at compartmentalizing. Generally they can be good organizers, but, but we need to, I think with a lot of the common psychology things, there's not enough compassion for the avoidance. They're actually very deeply fearful of being abandoned. So they're the first ones to run. Then you've got the disorganized, which is a big mess of them both, <laughs> which is what I like to call it, call that. Um, and, you know, there are cues for, for how this comes about, um, which you can also always Google and go into. It's really fascinating stuff um, as to why these attachment styles come up. Um, but the last one that we all want to get to is secure. So, you know, we feel comf confident and calm within ourselves. And, you know, when there's a problem, we can articulate it well. We can articulate our feelings and our needs with clarity. And that allows other people to feel safe in our presence. 
I love that. I love that you said the goal is to get to secure. So it's not like we're victims or locked in a box, mm-hmm. depending on what was passed down to us, but we can all learn how to move into a secure attachment style yes. and relationship. And before I even had words for that, you know, I noticed really early on in our dynamic, I would call it chase and run. I'd chase and yes. he'd run. So yeah. I was the chaser, the anxious attached, and he was the avoider. And I love that you mentioned the pros and cons because there are pros and cons to each. And I think that with a lot of pop psychology at the moment, you know, people are always looking for the next label and, you know, category of like, am I emotionally traumatized? You know, it's emotionally neglected. Am I anxious? Am I avoidant? Am I a fight, flight, fawn or freeze? Um, but when you kind of come back to humanity, like we, we're fluid um, and there, there's information that can help inform our behavior. Um, and also... They're, depending on what your your beliefs are as to, you know, our purpose even living in this world is that we're here to experience a journey and this, whether you're an anxious or you're avoidant or, or disorganised, there are aspects of that that were, were given to your experience, I believe, to help inform you and create strength in certain areas. And then when you understand that and you can inform, inform that and so for any anxious attachment style, you'll find a lot of healed or healing anxious attachment styles in the healing space (laughs) they have a healthy channel and a healthy outlet for okay this is something that really lights me up and you know I'm really really passionate about but having that outlet allows them to sit back and rest a little bit more in their personal life so I really like looking at it that way um, because when you understand your mind you can actually use its strengths and also make sure you're reinforcing where there are weaknesses because you have awareness of what those weaknesses are and you're not beating yourself up for that. Right. And which one did you identify with? Absolutely anxious. Anxious all the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we vibe. Oh, yeah, all over it. But the reason why I, I was challenged by that label at first was was because I was like, I'm not anxious. I'm, you know, quite a confident person and rah, rah. And then when I examined it and and really kind of understood, so, you know, anxious attachment people might have um, people, parents who parentified them, you know, who came and, and, and confided in them a lot. And you one minute were very, very affectionate. The next minute, you know, would pull away. And that's obviously no judgment. Our parents did our best, but this creates a pattern of, okay, well, let me see how I can fix this because you don't seem to know what you're doing. I'll do it. <laughs> we need to apply compassion for that adaptation so that we can fill in the missing gap, which was you don't have to parentify, you don't have to step in, you don't have to fix, you don't have to save everyone to um, gain that sense of security. You actually, It's the opposite. When you start to turn that internally and heal yourself, then you can regulate and you don't feel like you're trying to chase someone. You're actually allowing them enough space to come into the room, into the to the to the void and that that bubble that you've left, and explore how they can come meet your needs. I love listening to you, Lauren. This was so good. <laughs> and um, I want to before we end, I like to end sometimes with a rapid fire question game. So, oh, fun! <laughs> first thing that comes to mind, uh, I'm asking you a couple of questions, and just don't think too hard about it. Okay, question number one. Coolest thing about Australia? The drop bears. The what? The drop bears. What is that? <laughs> Are they koalas that drop out of the trees when you're not looking? 
Yeah, they're not Why real. If any, Australian tell, if any Australian tells you about a drop bear, they're, they're lying. So run. <laughs> Never heard of that. That's amazing. Um, what's your go-to breakfast? <laughs> what is your go-to breakfast? Oh, if I had the time, scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. Are you a coffee I just drinker? Love scrambled eggs. I do, but I've quit caffeine. So it's a decaf and I know it doesn't taste as good, but okay. I'll, I'll do my decaf coffee. I do love a, I do love a cup of coffee but I've gone off caffeine recently I did a, a cleanse and have never been the same but I miss it that's, <laughs> so never say never that's interesting I've been like a month off of coffee now I've been trying to wean off of it too and I switched to matcha lattes oh, um, nice. but I need something warm and cozy to start the day I can't like just cold turkey um where in America would you visit where in America would I visit I would love to visit, um, well, I suppose the first one that always comes to mind is I want to see Hollywood. <laughs> and people will ask you for your cool. autograph because they'll think you're Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah, naturally. I'll just tell them where to go to get their goop. <laughs> <laughs> so Hollywood and then my house. Sounds good. Um, yes, definitely. Dancing or singing? Dancing. Texting or calling? Calling every time. How about your ideal Mother's Day? Oh, I know. I've already got my ideal Mother's Day down pat. Okay. I get to sleep in. Rule number one. Then we go out for brunch. Not breakfast. It has to be brunch. Oh, yeah. Um, somewhere nice. Like we've, um, we live out kind of in the hills. So a nice little winery. We have lots of beautiful wineries. I've got brunches. And, you know, they're really kid-friendly with um, play areas and stuff. And um, they're just really pretty. Um, and then I get left by myself for a couple of hours and I go buy a new, new pair of shoes or a handbag or something just impractical that I don't need. And then um, we, we have a move night and, you know, do some activities with the kids. And that's my ideal Mother's Day. That's it. You have this very planned out to a T. I love it. And the last question I always ask all my listeners is what has been your greatest breakthrough in life? And what was the key to that breakthrough? Nervous system, um, understanding and working with my nervous system. Absolutely. A thousand percent. And having compassion for all of the parts within me and finding the joy and the peace that comes with not being able to release yourself from judgment and guilt and instead being able to have compassion not only for yourself because when you have compassion for yourself you're able to have compassion for everyone else and it opens up your world and enables you to connect not only with your children and your family but with the world around you um and when you can do that you show other people how to do it too so I think it's just it's yeah my absolutely my favorite breakthrough without a I doubt love it. I love it you're a walking testament to it you embody it and we wouldn't have met without nervous system work that's how we found each yes. other I know. All the and, way across uh, the globe. Like, we're going to manifest that that catch up, a uh, cup of um, yes. <laughs> caffeine-free coffee in your Yeah, kitchen. we might need to meet halfway somewhere in Europe because I don't know if I can do the flight to Australia. That's a long oh, flight. Man, as bad yeah. as I, do I mean, look, if we have to meet in Europe somewhere, I suppose that we should. Fine, we'll just <laughs> settle for Europe. Uh, I suppose if we have to. <laughs> Lauren, tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, be as obsessed with your social media page as I am. Oh, thank you so much for 
like Peggy? Oh, it's just I feel like feel like we've found kindred spirits, and I just I've I've had such a wonderful time chatting with you. I could do this every day, but um, my I'm most active on my Instagram, so that's at Lauren Dry, so D R Y L A U R E N dot D R Y dot official, and that's me. That's Lauren. Guys, go follow her. Go share with her your biggest takeaway from today. Thank you for your time, Lauren. And I know we'll chat soon. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to your audience for hanging out with me. Um, I've, I've absolutely loved it. Me too. Huge hugs, friend. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I love and appreciate you so much. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and leave us a rating or review to help others find the show. To learn more about working with me or joining the I Do Breakthrough community, head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Lee Aste, where you can learn all about my program in my bio. And please send me a DM with your takeaway from today. I'd be honored to connect and know what landed for you. I hope you have an amazing day and I'll chat with you next week.